Welcome to Notes from the Field, brought to you by Noeo Science. Hey, Gordon. Well, good to see you. Good to see you, Will, as always. Yeah, we've got a fun topic to talk about today, a couple of topics, and maybe turning this into a a two or or so different episodes, talking about courtship and reproduction. Okay. And so, yeah, we'll throw that right out there. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm thankful for a couple of things. I'm thankful that we're not talking about courtship in people. Right. I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. That's perilous country. Yeah, that's for, that's sure. for some really well-thought-out theologian who's got mm-hmm. way more wisdom than me. Yeah. So not going to touch, thankfully, animals. We can kind of yeah, talk can... about them, observe them, think about them with a little less uh, close-to-home kind of consequences. And it gets back to the first chapter in Genesis. Yeah. When God said to Adam and Eve and the creatures, be fruitful. Be fruitful. And multiply. Yeah. And so we're, we're going to get into the weeds a little bit. We are. As to some of the amazing behaviors of how different species reproduce their, themselves. Yeah. So we're, we're going to be introducing terms that maybe Maybe some parents feel a little uncomfortable. Maybe some kids feel a little uncomfortable. We're not going to go. Uh, we're not going to go hog wild right. in describing um, different types of mating behavior. But it's important to broach a lot of these uh, topics uh, because as we study God's creation, we have we have the uh, uh, language and we have certain vocabulary we use, mm-hmm. and it's okay to talk about those right. things. Kids that grow up in the farm, I mean, it's just they see it all the time. Yeah. Kids that have, you know, the the they know the ten kid on. homeschooling family, same mm-hmm. thing. I think my sons know more about human reproduction than I did until I was married. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, let's do this. Yeah, let's do this. So, um, I I assume you're going to give me an earful about some birds because birds really take the cake when it comes to courtship. Yeah, they definitely take the cake regarding gregarious behavior and ornamentation. Um, yes. Just kind of remarkable feather structures that are yeah. specially designed to to attract and right. to be a part of this remarkable choreography. Right. You know, and you mentioned lecking the other day. Yeah, that's a really um, important system, I guess they'd say mating system would call it. Mm-hmm. But courtship defined, how would you define courtship? Just well- for- in the animal kingdom, it's just a series of behaviors, both male and female. It's a dance, so to speak, where the male is attempting to attract the female either directly or in competition with another male. But whatever the case, trying to attract the female, either interacting with her directly or through showing off like an elect or with combat, male-to-male combat. Yeah. So behavior with the intent of uh, successfully mating. Right. With that female. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting and strange yeah, systems some, yeah. out there. And, and you know, I think you guys did this. One of my favorite parts of riding the dance was the, the fact that you guys really started to peel back the onion skins on what does sin look like in the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And uh, there's some of that too. It's not all. It's not all lovely and beautiful. There's right. definitely the That's certainly not certain Disney-esque. Uh, no, it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to decide if the creatures are mating or trying to kill each other. Right. And sometimes there's it's some, a little bit of both. Yeah. There. It's some. Some. Well, from our eyes, it looks brutal. For example, with some turtle courtship box turtles, I've seen it doing box turtle research where. The male has climbed on top of the female and is sort of pushing and shoving and sort of snapping at her head. And she's sort of ducking inside the shell. And uh, then he is sort of an oppressive behavior, sort of. Yeah. And I'm not sure, you know, the Darwinian mentality looks at all of these things completely differently. We believe whether it's a fallen world or not, it's, it's still choreographed by God, yep. designed, either designed for the fallen world, these behavior patterns where you have just that brutality between male and male competition to win the mating rights of the harem. It's just rough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some mass. Saw, some... saw in that uh, with the, the, the elephant seals. Right. So- yeah, and some and some uh, waterfowl, I think of uh, some of the most brutal court, courtship are really kind of forced mating uh, with mallards. Mm-hmm. You'll just have a gang of males who will just right, yeah, corner a poor hen there. Well, I saw that also in uh, Life in Cold Blood when Attenborough is uh, showing some sea turtles and like this one mating couple was just getting mobbed by other male turtles and biting him and trying to uh, wedge him off the female. And they were, they were really pestering them so much that they almost, the female almost drowned. Yeah. Just couldn't get up for air. Yeah. Couldn't get up. Neither one of them couldn't get up for air unless the male let go. And he was just stubborn and, and didn't, didn't let go. They m- finally made it to the surface, took some gulps and, and took off and finally ditched, ditched the other males who were trying to interfere. But it's, it's uh, not a Sunday school picnic. Yeah, you know? it isn't. I think I read a, a statistic uh, that less than 5% or so of mammal species are thought to be truly monogamous. Mm-hmm. And so either mate uh, and, and monogamy would be considered in the animal kingdom would be considered either monogamous for the season, just right. one mate per season or some, some creatures, the more rare individuals, you do have some that mate for years. Right. Some, uh, some, some uh, are, are there swans? The swans and geese have been known to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the other monogamous species that's really kind of flashy and fun is, uh, are the boobies. Mm-hmm. And so the blue footed booby, the red footed booby, they're really similar in in their um, appearance to the gannets, right. anyone on the East Coast who's ever seen uh, gannets that are right. diving off the coast there. And these boobies have some amazing bright blue feet, the blue-footed right. boobies. And they have a simple little dance that they do. They have brilliant colored, kind of Carolina blue, kind of like neon Carolina blue feet. And the male will stand there and he'll just lift one foot at a time. Right. And he'll just lift that other foot. Yep. And he'll do that for a while and then he'll bow and uh, eventually put his head back. Uh, and then if the female seems to light, if his feet are flashy enough, and there, there is research that suggests pretty strongly that the more muted colors lead to less reproductive success. 
And mm-hmm. so the brighter the blue feet, uh, those Neon. those males tend to be, yeah, they tend to be more successful. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and, and those, uh, those birds are typically monogamous. So okay. for the season, they'll keep right. one mate for the season. And so after they attract that mate, they kind of stick pretty close together as a right. pair. Another particularly different courtship uh, compared to this land tur- turtle, the box turtle, which is mostly just climbing on top and biting at her uh, head and neck as she's ducking in. If you look at water turtles, particularly painted turtles, I'm not going to make sweeping statements. I've learned not to because there's so much diversity out there. But painted turtles and some other water turtles will get face to face. And the male, usually smaller, has long toenails on the front legs. And he sort of gets in her face and strums her her cheeks with the the toenails. And she responds in kind. Uh, So they're sort of strumming each other's cheeks with their with their toenails. Wow. And, you know, eventually if he, she receives him and he gets on a lot of male turtles and you might know this, but one of the ways that you can tell some male turtles is that the plastron, which is the lower shell is slightly concave so that when he mounts on the back of the female, he sort of fits into her top shell called the carapace sort of like a very shallow ball and socket. They're ge- so they're geometrically yeah. complementary. Yeah. So Neat. one's convex, one's concave so that he fits. And usually he has to rear back pretty far to where he's like tilted at an angle and his plastron is actually facing slightly up. Okay. And he just looks like he's way just about ready to fall over. Wow. And if she let go, he would roll over on his back. And have to write himself. Is this true that most of these, most turtles, the male's smaller? Or is um, that not always the case? Boy, that, that's a... At least some are. Yeah, at least some are. Okay. The ones that I'm... But, like in box turtles, no. A lot of the water turtles, the, um, the male is a bit smaller. But in box turtles, the, they can be the same size. Okay. Or the male can be bigger. The female's usually more domed. And the male is still domed, but a little more flared. The, in the box turtle, the marginal scutes, which are the, they're more bell-bottom. <laughs> I love On it. On the edge of the shell, they're more flared out, whereas the female comes down more abruptly. The other thing about the male, as far as just looking at the differences, if you're in box turtle country, which is most, eastern box turtles, which is mostly east of the Mississippi, the males the cloaca, which is the, the vent, which is the opening of the reproductive tract. In mammals, you'd call it the anus, but it's the cloaca in birds and reptiles, yep. which the reason they have a different name for it is because it's a shared opening for the reproductive system, the digestive system, and the urinary system. Yeah. And they all converge into one chamber called the cloaca and then out. So in a male turtle, the cloaca opening is extends a little beyond the edge of the shell the the top shell okay so if you flip the turtle over and if you see the cloaca is beyond the edge of the shell so it's very posterior very yeah yeah 
Whereas if if the it's a female, usually the cloaca is a little closer to the body and not beyond the edge of the shell. Gotcha. And often the males, or at least the water turtles, males have these long claws for the strumming behavior. Interesting. So yeah, That's, but when yeah. you look at birds of paradise, oh, there's something. There's something. They are just mind blowing. And there's so many good little clips on oh, yes. on them. Uh, you can find really easily on on YouTube or if you're looking around. Those are very uh, spectacular mannequins, which is a smaller oh, group man. of of I, th- I believe that, they're ha- considered passeriformes, but very small creatures that that um, have do you some s- shocking dances. Yes, and have you seen a video? <laughs> I would really recommend if you look at the club winged mannequin. Okay, they, there's some uh, there's some video of the club winged mannequin where they've slowed down the film and these enlarged rachises of the feather are knocking together. I mean, it's it's just fantastic. Neat. I'll have to, I'll have uh, to look for yeah, that. Yeah. It's making a sound. It's stridulating of some sort. And these things are knocking together and rubbing past each other in a way that just blows the mind and they're uh, vibrating so fast. And somebody- Forgetful Manko re- dancers. This is, yeah. this, this is, is up a couple notches. Yeah. I have to just take my hat off to the, the club winged- Neat. Mannequin. And, and that's an interesting point. You know, courtship isn't just vocalizations for birds. It's also making sound with uh, wings. feathers, wings, right. et cetera. So uh, I, I'm broke, broken up a couple of my examples into different categories and mentioned monogamy as kind of rare, but mentioned the boobies and, and some other birds that are monogamous. And th- then there are a, a lot of animals that are polygamous. And so that means one of one sex with many or a several, I should say, mm-hmm. of the other sex. And the two main categories there are polygyny, mm-hmm. which is more common, one male with multiple females. And so that would be mm-hmm. like a harem, right. or like an elk or a fur seal has a right. harem of females. Or, and, poly- or polyandry, right. which is a lot less common, where you have one female that's kind of the dominant and several males. Right. And the one example there that's intriguing to me, I've gotten to see them in the field and, and watch some of their behaviors. Uh, the group of birds that's most well known for that are the phalaropes. Okay. And so phalaropes, P-H-A-L. Aren't they a, a shorebird? They are shorebirds. So they fit into that group. Um, they There's... roughly look like a sandpiper of sorts. Yeah. And uh, they are strange for lots of reasons, but one of the major reasons and one of the big tip-offs uh, that this bird does things a little bit differently is the fact that unlike most bird species, the female phalarope is much more brightly colored. Her plumage is much more attractive in most birds, uh, especially in songbirds. The males are much more visually appealing, more colorful mm-hmm. feathers. Uh, in phalaropes, it's the reverse. The female does the displaying. The right. female aggressively fights off other females from mating with her males. Okay. And she, uh, the male builds the nest, she lays the eggs, and then she often just leaves. Right. And the male does all of the, the parental care. The male does all the parental care. Yeah. It's a remarkable- uh, a Reversal there. Yeah. Mar- remarkable reversal there. And so a couple of, uh, you know, there's, there's simultaneous, they, they break up these creatures into all these different categories. The phalaropes are considered sequential polyandrous species because the female will uh, mate, lay eggs, leave, and repeat. Okay. And she might do that several times with different males 
during the breeding season. So Mr. Mom. Mr. Mom. Yeah, right. that's exactly right. The phalarope. Yeah. One more little note on the phalarope, just because I can't help it because they're so bizarre. Unlike most shorebirds, they spend most of their time feeding while sitting on the water surface. And they actually spin around in a circle and create a vortex. And that vortex sucks uh, wow. detritus off the bottom of the pond. And oh, then they wow. pack out the invertebrates that in that is, vortex. That, you just taught me something I did. Not. Oh, my gracious. It's that is so great. shocking to watch. Yeah. So rednecked and red phalaropes and Wilson's phalaropes are, are our three North American okay. species there. Wow. Yeah. Well, we talked about, you said courtship and reproduction. One of the things I wanted to mention, and I, I think I, in one of our earlier episodes, uh, I talked about box turtle egg laying. Yep. So I won't go into that, but one thing that's interesting about turtles and crocodilians and in some actually fishes is temperature dependent sex determination. Yes. So uh, this was discovered, you know, several decades ago where uh, the temperature of the nest determines the sex of the hatchlings. And so turtles and certain turtles, I can't make sweeping statements, but in generally speaking, if the nest temperature is high, it will be a higher percentage. There's a certain cutoff in each species. Yeah. But if it's above a certain temperature, average nest temperature, it will be predominantly male. And then below that threshold temperature, it'll be female. And, uh, you know, I forget all of the molecular mechanisms, but yeah, the temperature of the nest determines yeah. the sex. Yeah. And that's pretty, pretty um, bizarre. It is um, really strange. I'm not sure if I had mentioned we need to write down our episodes or, or I know. listen to You've them. I got to get that But um, you have a good memory. You're yeah. younger than me. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll ask if I'm repeating myself like an old man. Um, but, you know, box turtles will lay in a very rainy night to hydrate the eggs because okay. the eggs do imbibe water. And when they're incubating in the the dirt, you know, if there's a long dry spell, you want to make sure that they're well hydrated. Got a little humidor. Yeah. So they imbibe water and then they can hopefully not dry up because these shelled eggs will lose water, just hopefully not too much. Right. To keep the embryos from dying. But, um, What's interesting is even though box turtles lay on rainy nights, painted turtles will lay often during the day. I remember seeing one painted turtle nest. I was actually looking for box turtles, a potential research site. And I saw this uh, painted turtle next to Camp Hideaway's um, lake there uh, outside of Lynchburg. And the painted turtle was nesting. And then after it finished nesting, it urinated on the nest. Oh, wow. To hydrate the eggs. Yeah. Because it, you know, it wasn't during a dark and stormy night. So. Neat. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I hadn't considered that before. Yeah. So egg hydration, where uh, skinks are known to, when they lay their eggs uh, in rotten, moist logs, they'll 
reposition the eggs to make sure that the eggs stay uh, hydrated. It's pretty amazing. They'll actually this, move them. Move them to a, a better spot in the rotten log if one part of the log is getting a little too dry. So, and it's when you look at a clutch of eggs, you go, how do they fit inside that skink body? And it's because they have imbibed the environmental water from the moisture of the soil or moisture from the rotten log. That's really get a lot bigger. Neat. So, yeah, we were, um, we've been out at a lake this week doing some outdoor survival skill camp. And um, one of the things that was a shocking, I'd never seen it before. A couple of the, a couple of the kids, it's mostly around 12 year olds. And one of the things they observed early on uh, as they were attempting to, to catch fish this week, they noticed a lot of these catfish and bluegill both were hovering over little holes in the, in the uh, lake floor mm -hmm. and staying there um, and assuming they were guarding eggs. It was hard to see the eggs because right. it's a little murky and it's a little, a little too deep and the eggs are tiny. Right. Um, we saw bluegill and catfish doing that. Um, and then this morning went back to that one spot where the catfish were regular and there were, must be a hundred plus little tiny catfish. Wow. In this little divot in the bottom yeah. of, of the it's... lake and the adult was staying nearby, kind of right. guarding the brood. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, it was really fabulous yeah. to see that type of behavior. That's a lot of young to care for, yeah. which is, is a subject of a, a, of a future episode talking a little bit more about parental care. So yes. maybe alluding to that a little bit now, yes. another item um, that I, I think is worth mentioning, just talking about harems a little bit more. One of the, um, this is the polygynous um, type of, mm -hmm. of uh, polygamy, one male uh, and many females. And this is pretty common in mammals uh, where there's a, a significant size difference, males much larger. And I think one of the most well-known examples here in the West uh, are Rocky Mountain elk. Okay. And so elk. Uh, the males kind of gather up the females and have their territory that's defined and they, and they defend that territory uh, during the rut. They, they scrape their antlers uh, against trees. They bugle um, and, uh, and generally defend a group of females, uh, five plus females. Um, and another species that does this is the northern fur seal. And I got to spend some time watching these northern fur seals. Mm -hmm. the, uh, they call their little... Uh, breeding territories, rookeries. Okay. And so northern fur seals, which nest in uh, Bering Sea Islands and some other parts of, of the northern, far northern hemisphere, uh, the males will come to land in June, early June, massive males. They've just spent the winter at sea eating and they, they come to land in June in all their glory. And they're just bold and barrel chested and they're upright right. and obnoxious and full of themselves. And they, they claim their little patch of rock and they stay, you know, maybe 10, maybe 10 to 20 feet apart from each other. The males do, and they, they bark ferociously at each other, um, but they just stay there and they hardly move at all for three months. Wow. They defecate on themselves. They hardly move. They don't eat for three months. They just stay there. The females arrive about a, a two to three weeks later already pregnant from the previous summer and they come and they, uh, they bear, uh, their pups around the male right. uh, soon after they arrive. And so it might be five or so females with pups. It could be a little more. And, uh, the male ferociously, uh, guards his harem, uh, for the summer. 
And after the females uh, nurse nurse for a time, um, they'll start to um, uh, they'll be going out to sea to feed to mm-hmm. continue to keep their milk supply going. Um, and they'll come back and forth and feed those pups, nurse those pups throughout and the, the male summer. Will the male will just stay there. Stay there. He just stays there and stinks. Why? Okay, but uh, you said a harem, so he's yeah, guarding so he's, several. He's guarding female. maybe five, uh, maybe maybe three to five, maybe give or take a little bit. And how many pups um, per female? Tends to be one pup per female. Okay. Yeah, and so kind of a remarkable. Uh, it's his fast. And was this the female that he had the year before, or different? He, typically. And so he, he, typically it's the female he had the year before or the same harem. And right. then he, soon after those right. pups are birthed, he mates again. Right. And then. So they just, right. So it's almost, Irish it's almost twins. a year gestation. Okay. Which is pretty amazing, uh, pretty amazing system. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you my favorite. It's definitely a herp. Yes. Most salamanders. This is just amazing. The first time I learned it, I was just just sort of flabbergasted. Uh, for me, it's sort of old hat because I've taught it so many times, but I have to remind myself that a lot of people don't know this about salamanders, is that it's very indirect. Salamanders, whether it's, I'm sort of speaking broadly, because some salamanders will mate on land and some in the water. But regardless, what happens is the male will court the female and it may be pretty simple, maybe pretty elaborate. Some of them, some newts in Great Britain will waft pheromones and move their tail to uh, waft the pheromones through the water toward the female. Wow. And she, she s- smells the scent in the water. And he, once he's attracted her and she's ready, uh, he then deposits a spermatophore on the bottom of the, it might be shallow water. I mean, it might be a pond a couple feet deep and he'll be dead leaves down there at the bottom and he'll deposit a spermatophore, which is a little sperm packet on a little jelly-like pedestal. Hmm. So sort of cone-shaped with a little sperm packet on top. And then he uh, leads her and guides her. Often he will, there'll be a a little train and he is moving, she follows. And I don't know how they actually get it all just right, but he'll stop and she'll stop right over the spermatophore. And so he's not even necessarily touching her. Yeah. And she parks over the spermatophore right where it's in line with her cloaca. Wow. Yeah. That is so really she just, so unusual. there's the, the tactile. Now he sort of spaced it just right. So, and I'm sure she's sensing the spermatophore. So if he's off for a few millimeters, I'm sure she senses the spermatophore and parks right over it. So that her, the lip, and then the lips of her cloaca open and pinch off the sperm packet. Wow. So the sperm packet goes into her cloaca and then there's another, this is sort of amazing. I like these kinds of anatomical details. There's a little roof on her, uh, little chamber 
off of the roof of her cloaca called a spermatheca, which is this little little chamber where the sperm packet is tucked up in. And then when she starts to ovulate and the eggs come down her oviduct and come through the cloaca, then sperm is released out of that little chamber, that spermatheca, and fertilizes the eggs as they pass through the cloaca on their way out. So it's called internal fertilization, yeah. even though there's no copulatory organ of the male. He, right. ju- he just drops a spermatophore. She goes over it, picks it up, and is there typically internal, a internal fertilization? That's cool. Is it is there typically a lag between those two events, or is it? T- does she typically ovulate soon after that spermatophore? Soon after. Okay, because there are some mammals that can have this now, kind of delayed. It, it, there is sometimes a sometimes she lays eggs in a in small clusters. Sometimes she lays them one at a time and goes around and deposits an egg on an underwater leaf of an aquatic plant and mm-hmm. then wraps wraps the the leaf around the egg and uses her legs to pinch the leaf to sort of wrap it around like a taco wow uh to sort of protect and the egg from obvious obvious little nugget of nutrition yeah. Or or they're deposited in clusters. So there's lots of, there's hundreds of species of salamanders. Some do the spermatophore thing on land, but it's always in a moist retreat under log and stuff because these things are amphibians. They need to have it moist so that the eggs don't, the eggs are not shelled. Yeah. So those eggs have to be deposited either in water or in very moist areas under logs so- and rocks. So delicate, uh, yeah, uh, really neat. But there are some like the the Asiatic giant uh, salamanders, the Japanese giant, Chinese giant, which can get four or five feet long. These are enormous salamanders, and they're more like fish in the sense of its external fertilization. Right. The hellbender in the East Coast is also in the same family of these giant salamanders. The hellbender is the small one of the three. The hellbender gets, you know, 18, 20 inches long. Still pretty big for a That's salamander. That's a big salamander. I've never seen one. No, I've wanted I, to I see would, one for I've, a long time. I've, we were looking when I was in the Virginia Herpetological Society, we were looking hard for hellbender once in southwest Virginia, but mm. we failed. Another group that was with us caught one, but then released it before we- For yeah, shame. For shame. It was, it was rough, <laughs> but, uh, those, those salamanders will deposit, the female will deposit their eggs in a shallow depression, sort of in a protected area under a boulder in an eddy somewhere, this cold, usually cold, smallish to mid to smallish streams hmm. where there's a sort of a protected retreat underwater, lots of high, high oxygen water. Right. And then the male will shed sperm over eggs, so similar to fish. Yep. Yep. So we're just scraping the surface. Oh, well, I mean, I was it. just thinking the more we, I'm talking about it, there's so many very, very interesting courtship patterns and reptiles. And as I was talking to you earlier, this really is a good introduction to parental care, which we can do 
yeah. next time we meet. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of creatures that don't that have a m- much less direct type of uh, interaction with one another. Uh, mm-hmm. Many invertebrates that yeah. are broadcast spawners. Just to bring up one other category that doesn't mm-hmm. really include courtship. Your sponges, corals. Oh yeah. Um, these creatures that just uh, on a uh, corals are interesting. You know, you you mentioned kind of the right type of rainy conditions for for box turtles. Corals will often mass spawn on the full moon at yeah. at or at sunset at a certain time of year when the water temperature is right and just broadcast masses of eggs and sperm right uh, all at one time into um, the plankton. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then then the feeding frenzy for all the fish begins and and enough of these eggs and sperm interact with one another that they're able to sustain right. uh, sustain their community. Yeah, it's a it's you know it's uh, we were just talking about this earlier. This is the kind of the ride and the dance part, both. You right. Know, when we right. talk about reproduction and courtship. Right. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to mention, and that is the dragonflies and damselflies. These insects are pretty familiar for anyone who's been around lakes and ponds and water areas during the summer. These are amazing aerobats. Uh, they are highly maneuverable flyers, particularly dragonflies. And um, so most of us are familiar with them. Zipping around, hovering, darting around the pond's edge. When they court, the male, this is just pretty amazing. His genital opening is at the tip of his long, thin abdomen. And before he grabs a female, he will curl his abdomen forward. And there's a little chamber on his second abdominal segment, which is pretty forward compared to where the sperm is produced down at the end of his abdomen. So hmm. he curls curls it up, inseminates himself. What? In this little opening in the second abdominal segment. And then he grabs a female, she lets him, and he's got these clasps. Is he doing all this in flight? In flight, yeah. So he'll grab her with these sort of claspers, sort of paired claspers on the tip of his abdomen. He'll huh. grab her by the neck. Huh. So if you ever see uh, dragonflies or damselflies, which look like thinner, smaller, generally more delicate versions of dragonflies, yeah, you'll see them in tandem flying together, and you s- the front one will be the male, the back one the slightly lower down because the abdomen's sort of drooping, and she's kind of uh, held by his claspers on the you know, the, the claspers are grabbing her around the neck. And then once she's held like that, she'll curl her abdomen forward and place it up against his second abdominal segment and take on board the, the sperm. Wow. Yeah. And so, but when they're in flight and they're coupled like that, it looks like a heart. Oh, wow. Um, That's great. Yeah. You just sort of got to see it to believe it. Yeah. What are they doing? And and they're, well, it's pretty obvious they're mating, but it's, it's not as obvious as who's who and what's going on and why are they in that pattern. Right. So 
That's fantastic. Um, yeah. And damselflies do the same. You know, and, and then they, then once the eggs are fertilized, then sometimes, depending on the species, they'll either a drop whip their abdomen, the female whip her abdomen and dip it into the water. And then the, the eggs sink down just so she can fly over and just sort of drop them like depth charges. <laughs> or or luck, sometimes kids. the female will actually get a little bit more particular about where she wants the eggs placed. So she grabs a piece of vegetation and climbs down under water. Her whole body goes down underwater and then she glues her egg onto some aquatic vegetation. Wow. Some are very picky. Some just kind of strafe the water with... <laughs> That's With incredible. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to have to, I'm going to watch that more closely. Yeah. Next time. Great. I saw a lot of dragonflies this week. Yeah. I got, uh, I'll just say one, one tiny little bit here. Um, uh, red wing blackbirds. Oh yeah. So dragonflies are common. Red wing blackbirds are common. This is. Same this is habitat. Kind of cattails, a little bit of water. You got both. And a great time of year to just see them at their prime doing, doing their most ostentatious, wild, as you said, kind of aerobatic type of of stuff. And I found a red winged blackbird nest while by watching the male and female interact and went up to get a close video and photo photo of it. And just a, a last comment on those birds attacked me. Uh, I could feel the wings on my back. Oh, Both wow. of them came down after me. And, um, and so there's definitely some territoriality. Yeah. That's a part of a lot of these species, um, uh, courtship, um, and then, and then subsequent parental care. Great. Good stuff. So parental care. Parental Although care we next could time. talk several episodes on the just maybe we will. We, well, we can come back to it. Just got to <laughs> remind me what I've said before. <laughs> we'll do. All right. Good to see you. Yeah. Thanks, and Gordon. We'll see you next time. See you guys. Thank you for listening. And remember, for all your homeschool science needs, go to noeoscience.com. That's n o e o science.com. <laughs>